Uh, my name is John Nugent. I'm the youth minister here. Um, I don't know if you came expecting to see Dr. Reggie, uh, but he is not here. He's visiting a mouse somewhere, something like that. Um, and so, because it's a place where he enjoys, I guess. Um, but, you know, he's gone. So I'm here. Um, so if I do a terrible job, don't tell him. Um, but what I want to do with you today, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Dr. Reggie's been going through the book of Ephesians with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, when he asked me if I would kind of fill in for him, he said, I want you to fill in for me, but I want you to preach from Ephesians chapter 4, the end of it specifically. So here, preach from this passage. So I'm going to follow my instructions and do that with us this morning. But so glad that you are here with us. Hey, do you, when you gather with your family, what does that look like? Like when you have like your big family gatherings, anybody have those ever? Christmas, Thanksgiving, some of those things are right around the corner. When you get together with your family, what does that look like? For me, this is a little bit of what it looks like. So my, my mom's parents live in West Monroe. They are Art and Carol Canope. Um, and they're there, they had five children. Um, all five of those ended up living in a different state. Um, so Christmas was about the only time that we would all kind of come back together and see everybody. So those five children ended up having children. I think there are 13 grandchildren. And now, right, I think there are 17 great-grandchildren right now. So at Christmas time, when we all get together, it's always interesting. <laughs> What's really, really interesting that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but just fun fact for you, the 17 great-grandchildren, only one of them is a girl. And she got, like, married into the family. Like, it's boys. There are little boys everywhere. It's fun. But when you get together with your family, do you have, like, things that happen that you think, like, man, I love these people most of the time? Because when we get together as a family, we do. We love each other. But every once in a while, I have to hear, like, about my cousin who is not going to be there this year or last year, but especially this year, I know I'm going to hear about it because she's pursuing, she's working on a doctorate degree in, at Oxford University in England. And so we'll get to hear the stories of like, oh, John, so you stopped with the masters. <laughs> like, yes, yes, I did. But I have four wonderful children. And so we'll, we'll tell those stories. I'll hear like things of, like it always gets me like one of the things that I'll get really, really mad at is the chocolate pie when we get together. Now, I'm not mad at chocolate pie. I love chocolate pie. But every once in a while, there's a couple people in our family that are diabetic and I'll get the chocolate pie that has no sugar. And no one will tell me this beforehand. And so I'll get my, I'll be so excited, like to polish everything off with my wonderful chocolate pie. And then all of a sudden, I'll take that bite of chocolate pie and think to myself, man, wish they would have told me. Somebody could have labeled it. Somebody could have done something, right? We always do it after Christmas, usually. And, and so we, we always try to tie in some fireworks as well. And there's always the people that like go out there. And my, my grandparents live out on, a, on, on Eagle Lake there. And so they have some water and they have a little dock. We shoot the fireworks. And it's always great because we're way too close to where we shoot the fireworks off. And it's always great to see what's going to happen. Um, I mean, then every once in a while, I hear someone complain about like, oh, well, Uncle so-and-so like came and like, of course, he's going to watch the fireworks, but he didn't contribute any money to give to the fireworks for us to go buy them. Now, did he? And there'll be that kind of talk. And then like the same uncle will come in. They'll be like, well, I mean, like, oh, well, here, here he comes again. Like, uh, no, like, all right, somebody come sit by me before he gets here because I really, you know, I can't, I can take a little bit, but not a whole lot. And all of a sudden, like when you get around your family, there's different things that come in and just different things that come that, that say, you know what, as, as unified as you may be, every once in a while there's something that comes along and just seems to mess that up. 
Some of you, if you're like me and my sister, like we, we love to be around each other for like two or three days. Sometimes it's just time that messes that up and I'm just ready to go somewhere else. Sometimes it's what really messes things up is just people. Because we all have our things, right? We all have something about us that just tends to, to mess up unity. What should be there, what should be really, really great. Now, as, as much as my family sometimes get on each other's nerves with different political opinions and all kinds of things, we really do love each other. And if you could like have a, a camera in my, my grandparents' living room and watch all the things that go on, you'd see it. For you and I as a church, as a body of Christ, you and I are supposed to be in unity. Functioning in unity, living in unity, loving in unity. But sometimes sin messes that up. And sometimes it's our own sin. And that's really what Paul is getting to at the end of chapter 4 in Ephesians. He has this kind of last paragraph where he's, he's been talking about unity in the church and in the body of Christ and how we are all one. And then he comes to this and he says, hey, look, this is basically what messes it up. It's your sin. I want to read to you to, to today from those verses and just kind of see what God's Word has to say for us today. I'm going to start reading in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4, reading out of the ESV version. It says this, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, there's, there's not a whole lot more that gets on my nerves than someone who lies to me. I just, I don't like it. I'm dealing with it right now with a three-year-old. <laughs> and it, sometimes it's just stories. Last night, he has a little cut on his hand from when he was riding his bike. Do you know what he told his mother? I was cooking with Dad in the kitchen, and he gave me one of his cutter things, and I cut my finger. <laughs> and of course, my wife thinks to herself, like, what kind of negligent father is that? I'm like, that's not true. <clears throat> he lied. He makes up stories all the time. You should, it's entertaining. Um, but, but when people around, sometimes you and I almost expect some people to lie to us. Are you there? Like, like do you know people? Maybe, probably those people aren't in your inner circle. They're probably not the people that you're like the most fond of in the world that you want to keep the closest to you. But you, sometimes there's just people that are that way. And lies and falsehood, they destroy unity. Paul in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, if you go back there, if you want to read that. Uh, but what he's basically saying is that, that you and I as the body of Christ, we are one body because there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We are meant to function in unity, but lies break down unity. Now some of you might be like me and you think to yourself, like, no, well, I would never tell a lie. Of course not. But the word there is, is falsehood, which I think covers more than just a lie. Kind of like in the Ten Commandments where it says don't bear false witness. It's not don't lie, it's don't bear false witness, which is a little bit different because some of us are in the kind of boat where we would say like, well, I would never tell a lie. Now, if someone assumes something that's false because of maybe what I've said that wasn't necessarily a lie, but I've led them to believe something that may not exactly be true, but it benefits me in some way. Well, I didn't really lie. I didn't lie. But, but maybe they don't really believe the truth. I think this covers that as well. You and I, what we are meant to do is to tell the truth. Paul says, speak the truth to one another, because even sometimes the truth hurts. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25 says, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. 
truth sometimes hurt, but truth is always and ultimately what is best for us. Another way that you and I speak the truth to one another, especially as a body of Christ, is to tell each other about God's Word, where we find absolute truth, where we could, we could tie conversations into the gospel. How often are your conversations, do they circle around to God's Word, to the gospel, to what you and I know is absolute truth? If you and I are going to speak truth to one another, as the Bible just tells us to do that, for me, it would have to involve God's Word, encouraging one another with God's Word, speaking the gospel to people that desperately need to hear it around us. Do you get your conversations with people and do you try to work in Jesus Christ and the truth? Or do we try to avoid it because it's a difficult subject sometimes? What Paul encourages us to do is to speak the truth. Verse 26 it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. And this is what I struggle with, all right? When it says, be angry and do not sin. Really? Because when you and I get angry, a lot of times sin follows, right? I mean, a- anger is, is one of those deals that it's, it's very, very hard to control. But does it have to lead to sin? I don't think so. I think God designs us as human beings with emotions, and I think anger is one of those emotions that God has designed in us, and God does things perfectly. I think anger is, 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 is okay. It's what happens after we're angry. It's the, it's the actions that follow that up that sometimes are the sin. We know that Jesus Christ was perfect. He lived perfectly. We know that he's angry. Most of us know that wonderful, familiar story that we'll point to of him going into the temple and seeing people that are exchanging money and they're making profit off of people's worship. And he comes in, he turns over the tables and chases them around with a whip, right? You would think to yourself, like, well, all right, Jesus was angry. <laughs> but he didn't sin. You know why? Because it's about the bigger picture. What Jesus is really focused on there is worship. He comes into the temple and he sees something that is not how it is supposed to be. He sees where people are profiting. It's not about them coming to church. It's not about them being a part of worship and seeing, hey, what can I give to God? They are there trying to figure out what can I get from people and from this situation. And Jesus is concerned about worship being about God. So he comes in and his actions, what they do is point people back to God. Anytime that your anger makes you do something that points people back to God, it's probably okay. You and I, it's, it's, it's difficult, though, to have that anger because we don't necessarily see the bigger picture. A couple weeks ago, I had a, a seventh grade girl come up to me after a, a Wednesday night service, and she said, John, I need some advice. I said, okay. Um, seventh grade girl, let me see if I can do this still, all right? So I'm talking with her, and she said, John, I have a, a friend of mine that's just being really, really mean, and I don't know what to do anymore. I said, okay, um, it's a good friend. She said, yeah, she was my best friend. But she's just saying weird, mean things. She's being mean to me, and I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I know that I'm not supposed to be mean back, but that's exactly what I want to do. So what do I do? I said, well, let me... Let me just talk with you for a minute. Let's see if we can figure out the bigger picture here. Tell me, tell me about this friend. What's going on in, in her life? She said, well, she's, her parents are going through a, a divorce right now. She's kind of being tossed back and forth between all of that. And she, 
It makes her cry a lot. She's had some, some stuff go on with some other friends of hers that, that they've kind of left her and kind of abandoned her in some different situations. And so she's, she's angry about that. There's just, she began to tell me about all these things in this little girl's life. And I said, you know what? It may be that that little girl's not necessarily angry at you. She may just be angry at what's going on in life and just taking it out on you because you're someone that's safe. You're her best friend. And sometimes junior high students and adults don't exactly know how to take our anger out in the best ways. I began to talk with her and she began to see this bigger picture and she said, you know what, you're probably right. She probably just needs someone to love her. And anger begins to turn into compassion. You and I, when we can see a bigger picture, sometimes our anger goes away. And anger is also not bad because sometimes it, it, it produces good things. Sometimes there's people in the world that say, you know what, I'm really angry that there are people in the world that don't have clean drinking water. And because of that anger, they say, I'm going to figure out a way for them to have that. that there's social injustice, that there's prejudice, that there's discrimination, that there's someone that, that treats you like a doormat, whatever it may be. But when you and I, when we can figure out the bigger picture of it all, we use our anger to produce a good solution to a problem, that's okay. And bonus points, if you and I can take that and make that solution point people to Jesus Christ. If it's not just about, hey, I'm going to go and provide drinking water for someone, I'm going to point them to Jesus Christ while I do that and tell them about the living water. There you go. Sometimes anger is okay. So when it says, be angry but do not sin, don't chalk that up to impossibility. But it is possible. Verse 28, let's go there. Verse 28 says this, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who's in need. Let the thief no longer steal. And most of us in the room would tell ourselves, like, well, of course, like, I don't, I don't steal things. I'm not a thief. Well, of course not. But maybe every once in a while you get tempted to, like, have that business expense that comes along, and you've got a little bit of change left over from that. Like, well, maybe I just kind of pocket that. Well, teenagers tell them all the time, like, maybe you don't steal things. Maybe you don't, like, take money from your mom's wallet or whatever, but maybe you do get to school and you forget your homework, and so you steal answers from somebody else's and put them on yours. Still a form of stealing. Maybe for some of us, it's the idea of, of where you and I, we know that we are supposed to be giving in worship. We say, well, sure, I'll give a little bit, but this whole idea of giving 10% of my income, eh, giving sacrificially, I'll give what I'm happy with, but I don't know about that. Malachi would tell us very plainly that that's robbing God. Sometimes this idea of stealing maybe is, is more common than we think, even among Christians. And when he says, let the thief not steal, but let him work with his own hands, it's not so that he can have something to eat. It's not so that he can have a home. It's not so that he can have something for himself. What Paul says is let him do that so that he has something to share. Instead of taking, it's about giving. I fear that sometimes you and I, in pursuit of the American dream, we're in a pursuit of trying to figure out how much we can have, how much we can acquire. Instead of trying to figure out how much can I afford to give. Too often the question is, can I afford to have this for myself? when we should be maybe asking the question of how much can I afford to give? 
I think that's a better perspective. I think that's a more Christian perspective. I think it's a more biblical perspective that we work so that we can see what we can give. Let's go to verse 29. 29 says this. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I love being around those kind of people. People that are just constantly encouraging, like almost to the point where it's annoying, you know? We're like, could you just say something bad? Could you just say something bad about somebody so that I would feel better about myself a little bit? But I love being around those people. There's a couple of those that I, that I, I mean, I, at every, any opportunity I can, I want to be around those people. Because they, they build people up. And as they build people up, you just have a natural respect for them as well. They're amazing, amazing people. When you and I give genuine compliments without expecting something in return, that's an okay thing. Too often, you and I get a compliment. Ben did it to me the other day in the hallway. He, he walked up and he, he said, hey, John, look, I just, man, I, I appreciate this about you and this about you. And, and like, you're just like, you're awesome. And you know what I waited for? What are you going to ask me to do? Because <laughs> I don't know if you're rejoicing with me or not, but, but recently we've made a, a shift in our, our church where I no longer am your youth, your youth minister and recreation minister, but I'm now just your youth minister. And recreation has, has gone to my wonderful friend, Ben. And so I was waiting for this upwards right around the corner, uh, registration, forming teams, all that kind of stuff is, is getting here. And I was waiting for this, John, you're great and you're wonderful. Hey, by the way, but it didn't come. And I loved it. Sometimes we need people that do that. Sometimes we need to be that kind of person that will just give a genuine compliment. You and I are going to be associated with the people that we spend the most time around. I'm trying to tell that to teenagers all the time, that even if you're not doing something, if the people around you are, congratulations, you're doing it too. And you and I as adults, we function the same way. Whoever it is you're spending the most time around, congratulations, you might as well be doing everything that they're doing. So you and I, if we're going to be associated with the people that we're around most often, we might as well use our words to build those people up, to encourage them, make them look better. It makes us look better in return. You and I are supposed to be complimentary. We're supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be encouraging to one another. When we gossip, when we use foul language, when we tear each other down, all that leads to is the destruction of unity in God's church. Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This, this is one of those that, that for a long time just makes me scratch my head. This idea of, of what exactly does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? There, there's just things there that may be kind of hard to chew on, but let's see if I can make it fairly simple for us today. You and I, we grieve the Holy Spirit. What you and I need to know is that, that, it, that when you and I sin, when you and I mess up, when we make mistakes, we do something contrary to God's word and God's will for us that grieves God. Our sin was paid for by Jesus Christ's death. God's one and only Son comes and lives perfectly for us, and He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That's God's one and only Son. And the fact that you and I have to have that happen so that we can be forgiven for our sin, when you and I sin, it reminds God of the cost of that, and of course that would make Him grieve. 
Now, what's funny is you and I, we tend to grieve over things that we love. We don't really grieve over things that we don't love. If we lose something that's not very important to us, or if something happens to somebody that's not very important to us, often we don't grieve. But it lets us know that our sin matters to God because God loves us. I work with teenagers, and every once in a while I hear a story of some teenager that's done something that they probably shouldn't have done. Probably too often I hear those stories. But it hurts. For some people that don't know that teenager or don't know that situation, don't know exactly the context or what's going on or, or what's happening in their life, for some of them it might just be like, well, another teenager doing exactly what we kind of figure teenagers do. For me, though, when I know them, when I know what's going on, and if they're in our, our youth ministry, then I call them mine. And it hurts to know that I expect more, to know that I have hopefully helped teach them more and to see them sin, to see them mess up, to see them make a mistake. It hurts a little extra more. Now, if you took that and multiplied that by infinity, because my relationship with teenagers is absolutely nothing like my relationship with God, of course it would grieve God when we mess up. Now, here's the thing as well. Let me take a side note for a second. Paul's writing here, and he's writing his audience as, as Christians. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a Christian audience. So if you sit there today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you know, you've heard the stories about how Jesus came and lived perfectly and he died for us. But not just died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he came back to life, was resurrected, conquering sin and death itself. And by you and I putting our faith in him, we would have eternal life with God forever. That we are adopted into God's family as Christians. That we are co-heirs with Christ. That you and I get to be his family. That First John tells us that behold the love that God gives us. That we would be called the children of God. That we get adopted. If you don't know that, if you have not experienced that, then, then you need that. The reason that our mistakes grieve God is because we belong to him. And you and I, our sin does not come without consequence. It does not come without effect. One of the things we know that it does, it grieves God who loves us. Verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. All these, again, they're kind of ACT words for me. I didn't do so well in the vocabulary part, I don't think. And so I have to like, figure out like, slander and malice and like, all these things. Like, I don't use those in my common vocabulary. I don't tell my children, how dare you malice your brother. I don't think I used it right there. But when you and I, when I look at all of this, what we're really talking about, we're really looking at the idea of, of you and I seeking revenge. It's really the idea that someone has done something to me, and now I want to do something to them in return. I want to talk bad about them. I want to do something physically to them. Like I, that, that's the idea that's being given here. You and I, when we think about that, that definitely does not belong within the body of Christ, for sure. Paul writes about it several different places, but he also writes about it in Romans. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21 say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those verses there in Romans kind of mirror verses 31 and 32, because in verse 31, we get, hey, don't do these things. In verse 32, this is what we get. Verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Instead of seeking revenge for ourselves, we leave that up to God. In verse 32 basically tells us to be kind to one another and then to forgive one another. Kindness and compassion, forgiveness, those are things that restore unity. Paul's been talking about unity this whole time, all of chapter 4 at least. And what he's getting to, kind of the bookend of this, is saying, look, look, sin messes up unity. Sin destroys unity. Our sin, everyone's sin, if you're in the body of Christ specifically, if you have sin, then it destroys the unity that is meant to be in the body of Christ. But kindness and compassion, those help restore that. On top of kindness and compassion, forgiveness restores that. You can't miss that idea here at the end of that. Let me read verse 32 to you one more time. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But not just forgiving one another. It says, as God in Christ forgave you. I think it was Thursday night. I got a text message on my phone from one of our students, an 11th grade student. He was asking me this question. He said, John, I know that I have to forgive people, but can I still be mad at them? <laughs> Which we laugh, but it's kind of an honest question, right? I mean, sometimes people do stuff like, all right, I forgive you, but I forgive you. <laughs> right? But if you and I are to forgive as God forgives us, that's a whole different story. You and I get justification through Jesus Christ. I tell our students all the time that, that that fancy justification word, what that really means if you would take that and, and let it mean just as if I'd never sinned. The justification makes it where as, it is as if you and I never did what we did. As if God never knew that it happened. It is absolutely gone. He forgets those things, put them as far as the east is from the west, all those verses you've heard all of your life. When God does that for us, it restores unity in our relationship with him. When we do that for one another, it restores unity in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at. We forgive completely. We all make mistakes, we all sin, we all mess up. And our job is to first seek forgiveness and then also to give forgiveness. Again, all this is written in that context of, of Paul promoting unity. And much maybe like my, my family at Christmas time, Every once in a while, you've you got to go and say, all right, I'm sorry. Every once in a while. Because you want unity. Because when people are unified, some incredible things can happen. When a family is unified, 
becomes something that's contagious. It becomes some, uh, a place where, where, where you know that your children will not just be brought up well by you, but even by the people that they spend their time around in your own family, and that, that's a blessing. When the church is unified, then eternally significant things can happen. God can do things through the church that only God can do. You and I need to be the kind of people that we would say whatever it would take, whatever God would want from me to help build and unify the body of Christ. That's what I need to do. It's very simply I want to ask you this morning, what kind of sin do you need to confess? Because remember, we go and we, we get forgiveness first. What sin do we need to confess and repent of so that you can better promote unity in the body of Christ? Or what do you need to start doing more of so that you can better promote unity in the body of Christ? Because in our list that we've read today, it was a lot of things that, hey, you should stop doing these things. These things do not belong in the body of Christ. But then some of those things were, hey, you should do these things. You should speak truth, and you should forgive one another, and you, you should promote unity. You should be kind and compassionate. So it's not just about what we stop doing. I tell, again, students all the time, that they'll tell me that, hey, John, I need to stop doing this. This is the habit that I need to, to stop. Like, that's great and wonderful. But unless you replace that with something that's good and something that's godly, it's just going to come back and probably be worse. Jesus Christ gives an example of that with a, a man who's demon-possessed. And he says, hey, look, uh, the, the demon is cast out and, and everything is swept clean and the demon goes through desolate and desert places. And it says that he circles around and comes back and finds things clean and swept in order and brings back seven more. And the state of the man is worse than it was at the beginning. It's an illustration, I believe, that Jesus is using to say, hey, look, it's great to clean things up and to get forgiveness. But you better replace all that with something that's godly. I think that's why Paul gives us these verses of, hey, get rid of these things, but get these things. So what do you need to confess, but then what do you need to do more of to promote unity in the body of Christ? And then maybe who do you need to forgive to promote unity in the body of Christ? To repair that. I love Temple Baptist Church. It is a fun place to work, it's a fun place to worship. There, there are things here that God does that I'm absolutely amazed and it is a privilege to be a part of. I love our staff. I love our, our church body. I think God has, has unified us in a lot of ways. I think there's always room for improvement. So what can you do? What would God be calling you to do today? We're going to sing a song of invitation together. I'll give you a time to respond. I'll be down here at the front if you want to come and pray uh, with me. I would love to do that for you and would love to do that with you if you want to come and join this church because it is an absolutely amazing body to be a part of. Then come. If God's calling you to come and plug in here, then come on. Do that this morning. If there's other things you need to take care of, we'd love for you to do that as well. I want to pray with you. Why don't you stand with me? We'll pray and then we'll have our time of invitation. Father God, we love you. We love that you are a God who's provided a way for us to not just know you through Jesus Christ, 
And God, I pray if there's someone here this morning that does not know you, that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would bother them this time so much that they would have to come and accept you as Savior, put their faith in you, and have real relationship with you. Father, for those of us that do know you, God, you've provided that way for us, but not just to know you, but you've also provided a way for us to live in unity with one another. God, that's loving people like you love people. So, Father, help us to do that. We cannot do that on our own, but, God, through you, all things are possible. So, God, help us to love those around us in a way that promotes unity, that would show the world around us how different the body of Christ is and how contagious it is. Father, you be in charge of this time. As we respond to you and your word, may you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray.